This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Today we're live from the Mayo Performing Arts Center in Morristown, New Jersey, where I sat down recently with musician, poet, and artist, Patti Smith. Thank you for coming. We're here at, uh, at uh, the Mayo. My guest for the show this evening is somebody who is, you know, a very uh, unique person in the world of music. Uh, you know, a, a true poet, performance artist. I mean, so many things you could apply to her, but I think most people know her as a, as a great and kind of iconic musician. So please join me in welcoming Patti Smith. We were talking backstage about how I wonder what it would be like if you or, and I were kind of starting in our respective businesses now. Like, do you think that you're of your time and you came right when you should have come? And, and if you were to come onto the scene now with what you think the music scene is like now, well, what would you do? I forgot to ask you at what age. Like, my age I came on now? Oh, God, no, no. Well, this applies to me, too. No, 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 no. I'd be a greeter at a Vegas hotel if I was starting at my age. I Actually, I have no idea because I didn't really come into the music business. I was, I came, I wound up in music by mistake. I'm not really a musician. I didn't really want to be a musician or a singer. I just wanted to, I wanted to be a poet and a writer, and it was accidental, so... Would it accidentally happen now? I don't think so. I think I would have to be more focused on what I wanted, but also because I'm so untechnological 
and uh, things. I mean, I'm just not really suited for right now, so uh, probably I would have to be like a physicist. You'd be a driver. You'd drive have to... the ba- You'd be the person that drove the band to the gig. Oh, you don't even drive, No, right? I don't know how to drive, so I couldn't do that. It's true. She doesn't have a license. I said, you ever live in L.A.? She said, no, I don't swim and I don't drive. That's true. But if you came in now, you'd be a scientist, you said? Well, I, I, I don't know what I would be, but I, I don't think I would have a problem no matter where I came in. You know, I, I would figure out something. I'm pretty scrappy. Right. <laughs> now, but when you say that you weren't a musician, how did that begin for you? Well, I mean, I came to New York in 1967, wanted to be an artist, and I also wrote poetry. And after I, I, I just started writing more poetry, and then... Uh, was shepherded by people like Allen Ginsberg and and uh, William Burroughs and Gregory Corso, and they all read their poetry, so I wanted to read poetry. But I didn't want to be boring because I went to a lot of poetry readings and they were Snoresville, you know? They were like, <laughs> sorry, but really boring. So I just started like, Do they have, you know. at least have good wine? Do they have good <laughs> wine? I didn't even drink. You know, I don't do anything interesting, really. You don't? But, uh, I mean, I'll have a shot of tequila. Good night, everybody. <laughs> you don't no, have a I drug mean, problem? I'll, no, I never had a drug problem. Um, my, <laughs> I, thought, I thought we were going to do at least 20 minutes on that. I have a drug problem. I was going to do my half. <laughs> no, actually, I was such a sickly kid um, that, and my parents worked so hard to keep me alive that, you know, when I, when I came out into the world, the last thing I was going to do is fuck that up, you know? <laughs> I just, I'm not, I don't have a self-destructive vent, but also when I was a kid, my mother was a chain smoker, and she, I mean, real, true chain smoker, and when she ran out of cigarettes and she didn't have money, she would pace all night long. I'd get up at midnight and see my poor mom pacing because she didn't have a cigarette, and I thought then, I'm never going to be dependent on anything because I thought, what would happen if you got stranded on a desert island and you didn't have cigarettes? You'd, like, fall apart. So it was like an early lesson in uh, what I didn't You'd want. You'd be doing like, a lot of pacing on a desert island <laughs> if you didn't have cigarettes. Maybe 10, 20 years of You have of to grow tobacco. You have to grow and your then, own uh, cigarettes. But uh, I feel like somehow I didn't answer one of, uh, some question. Oh, I know. because It doesn't you're, matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You do whatever you want to do. How I wound up singing. Oh, I just wound up singing, like, to make up little, singing little songs a cappella between poems to make it a little more interesting and then sort of rapping poems. And it was just uh, organic. Did it you just, copy that from somebody? You just did it on your own. You didn't see anybody else doing that? No, I mean, I saw, like, uh, beat poets or, I mean, just, I think of everybody that I was influenced by, at that time in my life, Johnny Carson was the one. I just thought, like... He didn't have know, a drug problem either. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Right. But, I mean, but just the fact that Johnny Carson, his, his, his ability to improvise or to get himself out of any situation, that was always what I was looking for. If I was on stage, got in a bad situation, find my way out of it. You grew up in South Jersey? And you're kind of tough the way you grew up. Your dad, what did your dad do for a living? He was, worked in a factory. And what did your mom do? She's a waitress. And, and how many kids in your family? Four. Four. How many boys and how many girls? Three girls, one boy, and I was the oldest. You so. the oldest. Yep. And uh, it was tough. 
Well, no, yeah, no, I mean, we, it was financially tough. We yeah. had a, a, it was in those ways, very tough. But in another way, we had, it was very magical because I had really great siblings. I had a great imagination, read lot, hundreds of books. My parents, we knew that they had a lot of strife and stress, but, you know, it was just the world seemed so magical. It wasn't so bad for us. Yeah. Books were my salvation. Oh. And so I, I didn't think of things. The only bad thing was when I'd be hungry. I mean, truthfully, I liked to eat. I was really skinny and a real, I, I was always hungry. And that was my biggest You're problem. You were really skinny back then? Yeah. Huh. Really skinny. Yeah. What do you That's mean? <laughs> you don't believe me? I was. I really was. You were was. very skinny. People well, would think of you as being a very thin woman. But, but but you're saying that we, so, so there was it was tough. Like I remember, I, I got a, I wrote a memoir. It's coming out in April, and I talk about that. Like my dad was a school teacher, six kids, and they didn't have any money either. It was really it was a lot, you know a lot of stress, man. Really tough. Well, you didn't have credit cards and stuff like that. I mean, it was all like you had cash, and you got you know if you didn't have money, you didn't eat. It wasn't yeah. like a, you know. Sometimes you could get, you know, like a, uh, you know, a little credit card at, at Sears or something, you know, but um, it was... Uh, well, like you said, you had to use your imagination and, yeah. and, and reading. The same for me. It was like such a huge thing. It was, you know, TV back then, people everything. don't realize who are young here. <laughs> like TV back then, you know, they'd show a TV, uh, on TV, they'd show a movie on like NBC. They'd have like the Sunday night movie. And they'd show a movie that was, you know, you've, everybody's seen a hundred times, you know. They'd say, the sound of music this Sunday. We'd all be like, oh, my God. And we'd, like, run to the TV to watch the sound of music on TV, which, you know, they didn't have Netflix three, and DVD. Three channels that went off at, like, either 10 o'clock yeah. or midnight. And, uh, you know, and then uh, cartoons on Saturday. I, I loved being a kid. It was awesome. And then when you uh, left home, where'd you go? New York. I left when I was 20. And basically, I left to get a job because in uh, South Jersey and Philadelphia, the New York shipyard closed down and there were like 30,000 jobs overnight were lost. And there wasn't any work, no matter how low, a factory job, nothing. And there was no more work and I needed a job. So I went to New York City to get a job. And where'd you get a job? Um, in a bookstore. I got a, a series of bookstores until I really landed a great bookstore job in Scribner's bookstore, and I worked there for about five years. I think that really tells a lot about you. That really pretty much sums it up. You're home in Jersey. You can't get a job. You're starving. You go into New York to get a job. I thought you were going to say, in a restaurant. Well, no, so I did. you eat all you, the time. <laughs> Instead, you go to a bookstore. <laughs> but okay. A different kind of food. But no, you know what happened? My mother was a waitress, and she tried to give me a job at her counter, but I was so clumsy and such a daydreamer, and she fired me. And uh, <laughs> so then she was upset Tough that I was leaving home, but she, got, she let me take my white uniform and my wedgies. So the, the first day I get, I'm on Times Square, and of course Times Square was all different then, you know, and... Uh, I got a little a job immediately because they needed a waitress at a place, a little Italian place called Joe's um, on Times Square. And within like two hours, I dumped one of the, I had a giant tray, 
is tripped and the whole uh, tray of veal parmigianas uh, went on this woman's tweed suit. Not only was I fired, but my three hours pay went to her cleaning bill. So I went back to Port Authority, left the waitress uniform and the wedgies in the girl's bathroom and thought, maybe somebody can use them. And uh, then I looked around for a, a better job. How does art, poetry, music come into your life when you're in New York, when you're 20 years old? Well, first it was just getting a job. I didn't get a job the first or second day. I mean, I was sleeping in the subway, sleeping in uh, Central Park, sleeping at the, the cemetery in Flushing or Greenwood or wherever it was, and near where Herman Melville was buried. And uh, it took a little while, and truthfully... <laughs> but later on, I read the story about Bobby Dick, but go ahead. Is this, I did, I, it I wasn't really until I met, I met Robert Maplethorpe, and uh, we met a couple of times, but I was in a, a bit of a jam because a, a grown-up asked me to, to go out to eat. He was probably 40, but I was like 20. To me, he seemed like, you know, he was a grown-up, you know. And uh, I, I was really afraid. My mother used to say, don't go out with a stranger because, you know, they just want one thing. And I thought, oh, I was so hungry. And he said he would take me to dinner. And he took me to the Empire State Building diner. And I remember to this day, he ordered... Uh, we ordered, he ordered me swordfish, and it was $5. And I thought, he's going to want everything for $5. <laughs> and I was petrified. And so I, I ate the... I couldn't even eat it, and so I was so hungry. So the whole time you were eating, you were thinking, I'm going to eat. Maybe I should leave now. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to run out that door. But boy, these potatoes are so good. I have just a couple more <laughs> potatoes. Then I'm going right out that door. He'll never know. So we walked... But you didn't bolt. No, uh, I didn't know what to do. Then we walked. Dessert. We walked. Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't have any dessert. We walked all the way down to uh, Tompkins Square Park, and we were sitting there. And then all of a sudden, he said, uh, "I have an apartment uh, right around here." Would and he asked me if I wanted Did to come up. Did he say it like that though? Honestly, yeah, it was really creepy. He actually I had have like. An apartment right <laughs> He had, like, he had like a turtleneck, a white turtleneck, I remember, and a medallion. I mean, he was really. <laughs> So you creepy. went on a date with Austin Powers? I, that's so funny. No, he was supposed to be a science fiction writer, but uh, I was so. And, okay. and when he said that, I thought, oh my God, this is the moment. You know, and I, everything my mother ever told me for like 10 years of my life. And I was sitting there paralyzed, figuring out what to do. And I looked and I see Robert Maplethorpe come in, you know up through, just coming, it's almost like a cloud parted, and here he comes with like long curly hair and a sheepskin vest and, you know, and his dungarees, and I had only met him once or twice, and Pratt. I, I didn't even know his name, right. and I just met him sort of, and so I ran up to him and I said, uh, do you remember me? And he goes, yeah, and I said, will you pretend you're my boyfriend? And he says, okay. So I bring him to the science fiction guy and I said, this is my boyfriend. He's really mad. I got to go. Goodbye. And then I said to Robert, this is so stupid, but I did. I said, run. <laughs> and Robert and I ran. We ran. We ran. We ran away. <laughs> and, uh, and now the guy in the turtleneck with the medallion on is the 
president-elect of the United States. <laughs> Boy, did you play your cards wrong. You know, and then my life began. Life began that night because Robert and I just roamed around. We roamed around the East Village and everywhere all night long till two in the morning, just talking away. And finally, almost simultaneously, we both said, do you have a place to stay? Neither one of us had anywhere to live. We didn't have any money. But uh, the difference is Robert had knew some kids at Pratt, and he knew, he knew how to get the key to this one guy's apartment, uh, where his art was stored. So we went there, and we went to his place, and he showed me all his drawings and what he was doing. And after that night, we became inseparable, and that set us, at least me, on a path, you know, where of drawing and painting and evolving and writing poetry and a and you new fell life. in love with him. Yeah, we've we've you were we've, in love. Yes, you were together we were for love. a long, long time. Yes, through through many things. Yeah. Well, I was going to get into that actually, <laughs> but, but you're with him for a long, long time, and then things change for you as well in terms of your career. Well, I mean, at first, I mean, the thing is, is that I never cared about a career. I have to say. None of those things, um, being in a business, music business, career, money, what, what I always wanted, no matter how conceited it sounds, is I wanted to do something great. I wanted to write something as great as Pinocchio or The Scarlet Letter or, you know, just do something wonderful, write a wonderful book. I didn't really care about and still don't. I don't care about having a career or any of that stuff. I do my work, and in the process, I've had some great successes. I've had things that have had me banned from the world. I've had, you know, I've, I've, I've been in trouble. I've done, you know, I've left it all behind. It's not important to me. What's always important to me is really just to do something good, to do something that's uh, enduring. So when you started to have success, was that something that was, because it was so unfamiliar to you, there are those people who, I'm not going to say the word failure, they're more comfortable in anonymity than they are being successful and famous because it's familiar. Did you find that when you were becoming famous as a musician? Because primarily you became famous as a musician, as a singer Well, at a first, in the beginning, in 1978, I had my first big success with the song I wrote with Bruce Springsteen, right. Because the Night... I thought it was, thank you, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was exciting to have a song on the radio. I didn't think of it in terms of success or failure. It was just really cool to be on the radio. And back then, you know, having a single and meant, you know, your records were in the window and, and you could, you know, you played bigger places and met more people. But by 1979, truthfully, I could see that success was to keep going, you, I, I was doing less work, less meaningful work, evolving less as a person and an artist, and just getting more successful. And I thought, that's, that's not why I w was put on the planet. I wasn't put on the planet to you know, climb the ladder of success. I was here to do certain kind of work. And so um, I left. I left the music business in 79. You separated from uh, Maplethorpe when? What year? Well, Robert and I separated as a couple in like 72, but never as, we were 
just the same, only we weren't, you know, doing it anymore, you know. <laughs> but we didn't change how we were. We were always just the same. We were just, you know, had different physical partners. So we never quite really separated until I got married. And you, I think I read it in, in an interview where you said it was difficult for him to admit to his sexuality when he was first... Well, I, I think, it, it, you know, it's people... It was a different time. I mean, Robert was brought up Catholic. His mother wanted him to be an altar boy. His father wanted him to be in the military. And he wanted to be an artist, but he was suppressed that to try to at least please his father. And uh, Robert got a full scholarship. He was very smart. He got a full scholarship to Pratt, a military scholarship. But right before I met him, he just decided that that's not what he wanted. He wanted to be an artist. He didn't want to be in the military. He didn't want to be a commercial artist, which is what his father wanted him to ha- do. And his, uh, um, his uh, scholarship was based on, on, on that pursuit. And in, in saying that he didn't want to do that, that he wanted to be an artist, his father sort of disowned him. He lost his scholarship, lost his dorm, lost his stipend, like, overnight. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, back down. He really, he really believed he was... He knew he was an artist, and that's what he wanted to do. And that's at the moment we met. He was like... He had shed his family, his uh, career, um, any financial uh, aid that he had, and, um, to, you know, to uh, devote himself to art. And I had left my family, you know, um, my home, and come to New York to pursue, to get a job, but also to pursue um, my path. And we met at a very perfect time. You know, you were with him and still connected to him, even when he was very sick and when he was, when he died, Oh, yeah, I mean, we, you know, I'm still connected with him. I still think about him every day and, and, uh, the things that I learned from him or that we, we did together inform the work that I do. I mean, we, we bonded so young through art. I mean, of course, you know, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. We did all the things young people do. But I think that as, as he felt freer and freer as an artist and a human being, his nature, first he had to come out as an artist. Then the next thing that happened is he blossomed and felt his sexual nature. We had to weather that. We had to, you know, try to navigate what this meant, what it meant to our relationship, what it meant. And, and it was difficult, and it took a few years because neither one of us wanted to part. But eventually we had to part as boyfriend and girlfriend because he had to be who he needed to be. When did you meet your husband? You eventually got married? I met my husband in 1976 in Detroit, and I was on the road, and I met him in Detroit, and I saw him. It was, it's like a, it's really like a, a song. I saw him across a, a crowded room. He was just standing there in a blue overcoat. I didn't know who he was, and I thought, that's the boy I'm going to marry. I swear to you, that's true. How old were you at the time? 
I was about 76, I was about 28, 29, 28, I don't know. Did you walk up and tell him that right oh, away? Oh, no, did no. Did you say, I need no, to tell you something No, no, not important. at all, but Lenny Kay actually introduced us, and he said, uh, Fred Smith, Patty Smith. We just looked at each other, and I don't know. And we finally, uh, um, we had a long-distance relationship. In fact, because the night, uh, we had a long-distance relationship, and neither one of us had a whole lot of money, and to make phone calls was expensive, long-distance calls. I always, to this day, I hear people, my boyfriend only called me three times today, and I think, Jesus. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'd have to wait all week to get one phone call from, from Fred, and um, actually, am, am I going off the course to... And, no, there is no course. There is no course, yeah. You're my kind of guy. Yeah, come on, man. We're going I'm back your to ca- I'm your kind of passenger. I'm yeah. your kind of passenger, too, because... I, I just flicked the autopilot about 30 minutes ago, man. We don't, we're not going anywhere <laughs> particular. Because I don't know how to drive, and I have no sense of direction. I'm a really good passenger, because I can never tell if anybody's lost. You know, and I apply that to all, every part of life. But when you met your husband, and what did he do? Was he a musician? He's a mu- he was a musician. He uh, played with the MC5. He was a master guitarist. He was really one of our great guitarists, and, uh, and uh, he's just such a beautiful man. You know, we just decided, you know, we, we wanted to evolve as human beings, and he wanted children, and we just... We just decided to withdraw from public life and really know each other. And when, when we had children, they would really know who we were. And, um, and so we did. For how long? Till his, he passed away in the end of 94. So 16 years. So 16 years you go off the grid. I hate that phrase, but that's what you do. That's okay, doing. yeah. You go off the grid. Yes. And, and does, does what you do come like blowing out of you like in like weird moments like are you like in the checkout line <laughs> and you're like sitting going like a- peas and carrots peas <laughs> and carrots actually they didn't care who i was in fact because i had no driver's license if i wanted to write a check they always hassled me because i didn't have the right idea i'd have to bring my passport everywhere so uh that was detroit 16 years what was it like did you paint I No, I didn't paint because um, it was just the way our living quarters were. I didn't really have the space to do something like that, but I wrote every day. I, I could have never written Just Kids or the books that I'm writing now had I not had 16 years of enforced discipline. Because I've always been very undisciplined, and then unless I had a job or something. But then having uh, children... Um, I had to learn to wake up at 5 in the morning, and from 5 to 8 was my writing time. Everybody was asleep. It was my time. And it was really hard at first, but then after a while I got in a groove, and I still write early in the morning. And I really learned how to develop my craft. And uh, it was hard because there's no cafes around. There was no bookstores, a lot of things. The biggest... The the most hardest thing is in New York, you can walk out the door and get a cup of coffee in about two minutes, practically anywhere. But where I was, 
the closest thing was 7-Eleven, which was about, you know, half a mile away. So I'd have to, every Saturday, I'd walk to 7-Eleven, my cafe, get a glazed donut and a coffee. And I was, I was in town, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but I love my life. It wasn't easy because, you know, I had to do all the... We, we did everything. We didn't have nannies or housekeepers or even babysitters. We did everything. And I'm not the most adept at stuff, you know, so my poor kids, you know, their school uniforms and stuff. My daughter's little pleated, you know, jumper was like always a little jaggedy. And their blouses and their shirts were a little dingier than the other because I didn't like using bleach and things like that. But, but I... I love my kids. I love my husband, you know, and it was a lot of certain amount of sacrifice and, and, uh, you know, uh, but I, I, there was I never love a my talk life. about you because I just find this so interesting. You know, the, the, was there much talk about you like get back, getting back in there and getting back into your life to make money as a breadwinner for everybody's bad. You well, grew up in such a tough. Well, when home. we really, the, really needed, I always, I always feel like I got to work all the time. Well, when we really needed money, we lived so simply. I mean, we never went to Europe. We never went, you know, we drove anywhere um, that we went. When we really needed money in 86, uh, we did one record together, and uh, that kept us going. And, um, but it's just, you know, I, 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 I liked my life. I never, I didn't expect to be on the great stages of Europe. You know, to me, it was really fantastic that I got the opportunity. I never thought I would do a record. I, in, but in doing so, I got to travel, which in, I never thought I would ever have the money to travel and go to Finland. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I mean, all the places, I'm just joking, but I did get to go to Finland, even though I... <laughs> had never dreamed of going to Finland. But I mean, I got to all the places. I saw Paris and Rome and Vienna and all these places um, because I had a band and sang and, and did records. But it wasn't, it wasn't my focus in life. It wasn't my great, great vision. And so when I didn't do it, I was grateful that I got the opportunity, but I wasn't mourning the situation that I wasn't doing it. You know, I wasn't missing the applause. It wasn't like a Judy Garland movie or something. I just, you know, I felt, you know, really happy writing, you know, watching my kids grow. I did what I needed to do. Are you glad happy. that you had the experience to be a mother? Oh, yeah. I lo- my kids are awesome. And the funny thing is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say this because my kids know. I never wanted kids. I just wanted to be an artist. I didn't want to be, have kids. And I came from a big family, and I helped raise my siblings, and I just wanted to be free. And it was Fred who wanted children. And I loved him so much, and I thought, well, I can do that. you know. I, but I never expected to just love my kids so much and just love being a mother. And since Fred died when he was 45, um, you know, I have them. I have them, I, I see so much of him in them, not just in the way they look or certain gestures, but it, even in their music, the tones of my son's guitar, he'll be playing a guitar solo. He never heard his father 
play guitar because they were quite young. It's Fred's tones, Jesse at the piano. She is just his feel. And she never heard him play piano, but she has his feel. And it's it's awesome to to have them as individuals, but also how they magnify their father. Coming up, more from my live conversation with Patti Smith. Explore the Here's the Thing archives, where I talk with another musician, one who was transformed by the music of Patti Smith. She represented something other and something, to me, alien. And part of that was this... this um, uh, openness, this fluidity about sexuality that I think certainly resonated with me and with, with millions of other people who are questioning their sexuality or, or, or emerging into something that they weren't familiar with or something that wasn't, at the time, uh, quite accepted or acceptable. Take a listen to my conversation with REM frontman Michael Stipe at heresthething.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parrish, from my new series, Parrish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver. Yeah! I'm retired from life, you know that. His business is failing, his house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger. And we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money, and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. 
and he's in a world over his head. Now, let's go! He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Today, live from the Mayo Performing Arts Center in Morristown, New Jersey, where I sat down with musician and poet Patti Smith. Now, when you uh, was writing songs for you, uh, difficult and kind of laborious, or did they come to you or both? Well, I, I mean, uh, writing songs isn't my first vocation, and I, I, it's, I'm not as facile at writing songs as other things. Also, since I don't really, I only, I play a few chords on the guitar so I can figure out some things. But sometimes songs come, songs are so strange, sometimes they just come as a gift. I've woke up in the morning and there's a song there and I quick write it down. It just comes full with the music and the words. And then there's, other songs that have taken three years to, you know, to have a piece of music and, and write words. But it's, it's labor, songwriting, and there's a lot of responsibility, um, responsibility to the uh, composer, because most of my songs, the music was written by a band member or Fred, and, uh, and, and so you, you want to uh, please them but it also has to be something that I can sing. But the easiest, one of the easiest things was to write um, to Because the Night, because Bruce, I, I had a, a cassette with a, um, it was a demo, and I, I really didn't want to listen to it. You know, it was given to me by my producer, Jimmy Iovine, and he coaxed Bruce into letting me finish it. Bruce couldn't figure out. He was having trouble writing verses to the song. He had the chorus. And Jimmy gave it to me, and I didn't want to listen to it because I thought um, I wanted to write, I wanted my band to write their own songs. And, uh, and Bruce is from, like, a different part of New Jersey than me, and uh, <laughs> he's sort of in the middle, and I'm from South Jersey, and it's like I really, I just didn't want, you know, a, a, sort of a... Middle You didn't want Bruce Springsteen to pollute your song, in which sense. <laughs> Don't bring that middle Jersey shit into my music. No, I'm, I, no I'm from New Jersey. It's just I'm from, like, the cooler part of Jersey. Right. But I was, this is what I was saying before, but one night I was waiting. Jimmy had given me this tape when we were doing this album, Easter, and every night Jimmy would say, hey, listen to the tape. Did you listen to the tape? Did you listen to the tape? And I said... Uh, not yet. And he called me up, did you listen to the tape? Did you listen to the tape? Uh, not yet. So, uh, you know, it was just sitting there in my little apartment on McDougal Street. And uh, so anyway, Fred was supposed to call me, and it was like 7, and I got all ready. I look cool, and I'm sitting there, and the phone's sitting there, and I'm waiting for Fred to call. And 7 goes by, 7.30, no Fred, you know, 8 o'clock, I'm pacing around, and, you know, I was, like, obsessive. You know, I wanted, you know, the phone call, and I couldn't, I was just pacing and pacing, couldn't figure out what to do with myself. And I noticed this, the darn tape, and I thought, listen to that darn tape. So I put it on my cassette machine and put it on, and I listened to it, and it's in my key, perfectly arranged, anthemic, 
has a really great chorus. And I thought, ugh, it's one of those darn hits. It's just, you know, <laughs> yeah. So I listened to it, and it was, you know, it was captivating. And I'm waiting for Fred and waiting for Fred. Finally, he calls me up like 11 o'clock at night. But when he called me, uh, because it took so long, um, I had finished all the lyrics to the song. And uh, that's why in the second verse it says, uh, let's see, Have I doubt when I'm alone? Love is a ring, the telephone. I was waiting for Fred to call. So, and... uh, so I wrote the words, and, uh, and, th- and thanks to Bruce, I had my, uh, my first hit. Yep. Um, <laughs> now, um, writing books when you did Us Kids and then M Train was quite a gap in between those two books, but was writing books difficult for you as well? Well, Just Kids was really difficult because I basically wrote fiction, and... Uh, and even though it wasn't in poetry. And the day before, literally the day before Robert died, he asked me to, if I would write our story. And our story was something that we cherished. It was, he used to like me to tell him our story. Sometimes we didn't have enough food or we were hungry and we couldn't go anywhere. And he'd say, tell me our story. And so I would start like a little fairy tale, tell the story of how I came to New York and how we met. And so I promised him I would write it, having no idea how I would do that. And it took me a really long time because also so many things happened. My, uh, Fred passed away, then my brother passed away, and I, I had two young children. And so it took a long time for me to fulfill this promise but all the discipline, all what I had learned in all those years in Michigan really taught me how to sustain writing. Finally, I got it done. And it was, it was so exhausting when I was done, I, I could hardly write another thing for a while. Two things I want to ask you, and then we're going to take some questions, I think, from the audience. But you seem like somebody, like I read interviews with you and I saw clips of you talking to people and and I think the one thing we have in common is an appreciation of people that you admire and people you worked with and that you liked. And, and I was wondering when you look back, I mean, you've had such a long career and you've worked around people who were these amazing, unique people. Uh, and during unique times, you know, in the 60s and the 70s and so forth. And if you could mention just one or two people who, when you look back now, people who you think, man, I can't believe I got to know that person. I got to hang out with that person. Well, I think that just having uh, Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs, and Gregory Corso as uh, mentors uh, at a very young age, and they really did shepherd me. Um, and I mean, Alan speaking of of activism and performance and and uh, serving the people, and uh, and William in, in, uh, taught me so many other things: how to conduct myself, uh, how to protect my work, um, how to try to have a good name. I mean, they all had their their advice for me, and uh, and Gregory uh, was so irreverent, you know, just uh, no bullshit, and uh, both both a romantic poet and uh, completely unbridled. 
I just, I, I learned so much from these three men. They were so different and they were so unique and their work um, all said, did such great work. And um, when I look back, I just sort of went with the flow when I was a kid, you know. I just thought, you know, they were cool and, and they were so helpful. But when I, when I look back now, it's really with a sense of wonder that I came from truly such a rural area where, you know, there was a pig, you know, we lived in this little house and there was a field and then a, a big pig farm. Across the street was a peach orchard and down the road there was a little skating rink and up the road was a little armory where there were school, where there were dances with a disc jockey like once a month and there was like nothing there. And how I went from there and found these guys is, uh, you know, magical. It just, I can imagine your childhood, like your brother sitting there going, like it's Saturday afternoon, they're like, what do you want to do? And the other brother's like, I don't know, you want to throw dirt bombs at the pig? <laughs> no, like, actually, no. we would like... You want to go skating? <laughs> nah. You want to go get some peaches from the orchard and throw them at the pig? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's do that. Actually, we, we, I, I was taken to court when I was 11 because uh, <laughs> I st- we, we, my dad was on strike and there was like no food in the house. And my mother could make really good pie. So we snuck over to old man Baker's field and he had a peach orchard and they were on watch, my sister and brother, and I climbed up the tree, and I, I was getting peaches, and just filling up a basket. An old man baker comes, and I, uh, he comes after us with a salt rock and a gun. That's what we had. And, uh, you know, yeah, they you, shot us with a salt yeah, rock. Yeah, salt rock. And boy, a Bernie butt one would have. But uh, they got away, but he caught me. Then I had to go to court. He had a lawyer, and he said, I, you know, I was a ringleader of a gang. He was up there saying <laughs> that I was a ringleader of a gang. I was there with, like, so skinny with these long, straggly braids and my little, you know, blue checkered dress sitting there like this. And, like, he's talking about this ringleader, you know, that did thousands of dollars worth of damage yeah. and You're going on and on. And then they had me come up in front of, and when I had to walk up, and everyone looked at me. The whole courtyard burst out laughing. It's like Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. No, it's just like... Uh, when I was a kid, we used to golf on a local golf course next door to our house. We'd sneak out in the summer at 7 o'clock, and all the golfers were gone. And we'd take a pitching wedge and a 7-iron and a putter, and we'd hit on this hole that was right near our house. And then eventually you'd hear them go, Get off of that green! And you hear, <laughs> boom! And you'd hear... All the salt, it shoots salt oh my, cartridges It's hard, us. it's hard when that's... I mean, it doesn't can't kill you or anything, but it is Bernie. Yeah, they used to shoot us with the salt. Now, the last thing I want to ask you is, because I think a lot about this, too. Do I have any it, scars on my butt? Is is it, <laughs> put it in the book. <laughs> the next book. Um, to talk to people, I, I, you know, a big... A piece of my book, not a big piece, but a, a, an important piece, is me talking to people, is talking to myself as a young person, to a young person who goes into the arts or goes into uh, theater specifically. But you really have to develop a muscle to not care what other people tell you about what you want to do if you have a really burning passion to do something, because life is so short. 
I think people don't really learn growing up how to be happy and how to enjoy themselves enough in a healthy way, in a reasonable way. That's so nice, you know, because my, it, my father, I, I, he was a factory worker, but he was really, really intelligent, really intelligent. And once uh, I asked him, um, I think, I don't know, I was probably in my early 20s, what is the greatest thing a person could strive for? And I imagined he would give me some lofty answer because he was reading Carl Jung and he was reading uh, Shakespeare and Aristotle and all these guys in the Bible. And he said, you know, the greatest thing to pursue is happiness. And it's just, when I was young, I thought, really? You know? <laughs> and you now, I do get it. You know, and it's like, even in these times, in the, these times it seems like the, the most terrible of times, I still try to hold on to that and remember that, that no matter what, we have the right. The pursuit of happiness just is, is, our, is, a, is, is a right. We're born with that. Are we going to take some questions? What do we, uh, are you right here? Your hand is raised. Patty, what women inspired you throughout your career? Well, that's a simple question. When I go all the way back, I could start with, I loved Madame Curie when I was little. I loved Louisa May Alcott. I loved Joan of Arc. I loved Ava Gardner. Peggy Ann Gardner. Peggy Ann Gardner in, in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. She was awesome. And, uh, and I loved Grace Slick, and I loved Joan Baez. And I love Nina Simone, and I love my daughter, and uh, there's a million women. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of, I mean, now lots of really great movie stars, you know, you have Emily Blunt, or Emma Blunt, or Emily Blunt, and Emma Stone, and, and Kristen Stewart, and, and all the girl actresses. I like them all, you know. I enjoy being a girl. And I enjoy, uh, I enjoy the great things that girls do, but um, I am partial to fellas. <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> Thank God for that. I've had a... I must say. Believe me, I've had a million... One a for million, my team. <laughs> we, 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 are, we have 50 hands up here. We're, we try to go boy-girl, boy-girl. Balcony. Um... You, did, you just sang at the Nobel Prize, and it was really just a beautiful, moving performance. Um, and I'm as nervous now as you were then. Um, but, but I was thinking about singing that great Bob Dylan song, and I, I know from reading about Bob Dylan that um, Allen Ginsberg, that was the song where, where Allen Ginsberg started to say, this guy really has something. And I'm wondering if you connected uh, your, your friendship with Allen Ginsberg with the performance of that song, uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Well, it would have been a nice thought, but truthfully, I didn't, and I didn't really know that. Um, the thing that I connected, a small personal thing, is I do have a blue-eyed son, and so singing those words, Where Have You Been, My Blue-Eyed Son?, takes me right to my blue-eyed son. 
Also, I heard it when I was 15 years old. And when I heard that song, I thought, this fella is a poet. So I, perhaps it's the song that brings those thoughts. It, it, um, it resonated with Allen Ginsberg, but it also re re resonated with me, a 15-year-old schoolgirl. It was like a Rimbaud poem or something. But in, I chose the song because I thought he's winning the Nobel Prize for Literature. It was the first song I heard of his that I felt that this was a poet singing to us. So I went all the way back um, and chose, chose it from there. We got time for one more. We have somebody with the mic now. Hold on, please. Thank you so much. Uh, Ms. Smith, it's an honor to speak with you. As an artist and art educator, I've used Just Kids in my classroom to basically talk about an artist's journey and discovering your path. You always do an advice to a young artist. What ammunition would you have to help stockpile that we can continue to encourage positivity, creativity, and individuality? Well, you know, the advice that I have is always very simple, that you... You want to pursue life uh, as an artist. Um, just I could go all the way back to when we first started talking about Robert Maplethorpe. He wanted to be an artist, and he had to sacrifice a lot to make that choice. He sacrificed all his, all the, all his comforts, the support of his family, his scholarship, um, he sacrificed all of that because he knew what he wanted. He had a vision. He felt he had a calling. And when you have that um, and, and feel that you can't live without pursuing it, then you have to do everything that you can um, to magnify uh, the gift that you have. And it's going to cost you. It's, you have to be willing to sacrifice you have to be willing uh, to work really hard. You have to be willing to perhaps go years or quite a long time without recognition, without acknowledgement. And you have to, um, in, in the face of all that, maintain your vision as vision. You know, being, being a real artist and maybe in, you know, some old-fashioned sense, the way I look at art, it is, it is like, it is a sacred quest. And uh, it doesn't have anything to do with fame and fortune. You can achieve fame and fortune in the pursuit of it because perhaps the stars are aligned. But that can't be your prime directive your prime directive has to be to do something new, to give something uh, new to the canon of art, to give something new to the people, and uh, to do something great, to do something enduring, something inspiring, something that will take people somewhere they've never been taken. And you have to remember, you know, why you want to create. And so I just say, again, simply, hard work and sacrifice 
happily. Because if you can't sacrifice with joy, then it's meaningless. And if you sacrifice and you maintain your joy and, in, and your enthusiasm and your curiosity and your ability to work hard, you'll achieve something. So that's what I got. We're going to do... We're going to do just one last one, only because I'm afraid you're going to hurt yourself if I don't call uh, on you. <laughs> Go right ahead. Patty, when you were starting your career, what musicians inspired you the most? Well, first of all, I have to say again, I never embarked on a career. So, you know, my road was so serendipitous that it's not really fair to call it a career. But the people that inspired me the most when I was young were... Um, I, Eleanor Stieber, you know, uh, uh, Maria Callas, um, Coltrane, Nina Simone, Bob Dylan, of course, and Joan Baez, and, and then hearing Grace Slick sing White Rabbit. I mean, there's so many. Neil Young, we have so many. There's so many people to be inspired by. But uh, the animals, you know, they just go on and on. But... Uh, you know, if I had to distill it really down, Bob Dylan was really one of my greatest influences. Let's have a round of applause for Patti Smith. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.